Welcome to another episode of the Training Data Podcast. My name is Jake Shermeyer, and I'm going to be filling in for our usual host, Ryan Lewis, today. Um, I am a research scientist with Cosmic Works, and I was also the challenge manager for SpaceNet 6. Uh, today, I'm being joined by a wide host of characters here. Um, first of all, we've got a data scientist from Cosmic Works, Daniel Hogan, uh, also known as the Prince of PyTorch to some. Uh, he has led the development of the most recent addition to Solaris. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that today, as well as the SpaceNet 6 baseline, and was the visionary behind the new SpaceNet 7 metric. How's it going, Daniel? Doing well. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, also joining us today, we've got Ronnie Hench. Uh, he's a senior researcher with the German Aerospace Center, uh, I believe our first German to, to join the Training Data Podcast. Uh, he is one of the leaders of uh, the IEEE GRSS, Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society, uh, which is also a SpaceNet partner. Ronnie has expertise in remote sensing, multiple publications focused on SAR, data fusion approaches. That's a hint to what we'll be talking about today as well. Uh, so welcome, Ronnie. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, and our final guest today is a community enablement engineer for Capella Space. Um, he has also co-authored a, a few blogs with uh, Daniel Hogan, our SAR 101 and 201, as you might remember. Uh, he also has expertise in remote sensing and image processing, focuses uh, on computer vision overhead observations, notably SAR, and his name is Jason Brown. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Jake, and good morning, everyone. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. So the reason why I brought uh, this cast of characters together is we've really got an omnibus episode. Uh, if this podcast was a movie, uh, we like movie references here, you might think of it as Pulp Fiction because we've got many different storylines coming together, uh, many different modalities as well. Uh, as this is a SpaceNet 6 focus podcast, um, this is going to focus on kind of the intersection of SAR and optical imagery. Uh, so a lot of our storylines today will really focus on, on that intersection. So we'll be talking about the data fusion and also transcoding the SAR to look a little bit more like optical data. We'll also be discussing the value of frequent revisit. We can actually have many revisits uh, from our SAR sensor. And ultimately that will uh, have some benefit for when you're trying to, to map objects like buildings. And finally, we'll be talking about the SAR library that Daniel led the creation of. So this is a well, it's not, not only a SAR library, it's also a, a remote sensing pre-processing library, uh, and it also has a new API for really uh, seamlessly stringing together different operations. Um, so all of these topics we'll be discussing today. If you're not familiar with SpaceNet 6, you can go back and listen to some of our past episodes or read our blogs about this. Uh, but the gist of SpaceNet 6 is that it's a, a unique data set that features a combination of Capella Space SAR data and Maxar Worldview 2 imagery over the port of Rotterdam, the, the Netherlands. And uh, we uh, had a challenge around this, and the goal of the challenge was using AI and computer vision algorithms to automatically extract building footprints at scale. Uh, so let's just jump right into our first topic here, and that's really discussing uh, data fusion and uh, transforming SAR data to look a little bit more like optical data. So. On the data fusion front, why, why would we do data fusion? Well, there's, there's obviously advantages to both of these modalities. So using both SAR and optical together is likely a wise approach to try to extract different features of interest. 
Uh, the second topic is really uh, the transcoding or transforming Sardata to look a little bit more like optical data and steal some of that, that good color that optical data has. So why would you do this? You would do this maybe because you don't have concurrent optical SAR collect. You might only have SAR imagery at one date and you might have optical at another date. So can you use that optical imagery in some way to attempt to uh, colorize or improve your, your SAR data in some way? And furthermore, will that help you with your, your task of interest? Um, so we, we really teased or um, touched on some of this uh, with our baseline. And uh, we did that with a transfer learning approach. Daniel, can you walk us through kind of what transfer learning is and how we did that with the baseline? Yeah, so with SpaceNet 6, we faced, uh, it was constructed to be exactly the type of uh, challenge that you're describing, where you have different modalities uh, from the same place, possibly from different times, although in SpaceNet 6, they were coincident. And so we addressed this with a transfer learning approach where the model was first trained on optical data for the area in question. And then the final weights from that process were used as the initial weights for the subsequent training on the SAR data. So the idea is that since the SAR data was limited, we could use the optical data to teach the model the basics of understanding um, basic image, basic shapes and lines and, and the nuts and bolts of identification and segmentation in this overhead imagery. And then once that had been done, the model could hone in specifically on looking at the SAR data that we had in this data set. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And, and this transfer learning approach did this really, this helped us, I'm assuming, extract buildings a little bit better versus just training on SAR. Yeah, so compared to a model trained only with the SAR, only with the SAR data, a model trained with the initial transfer learning step with the optical data did uh, perform noticeably and statistically significantly better. Okay, that's interesting. Now, I know a number of our participants tried this the same approach, but only, it was interesting, only two of the top five ended up doing a, a similar approach where they pre-trained on the optical data and then on the SAR data, and they found that uh, training on ImageNet instead upfront ended up being equally performance. So that's, that, that's an interesting statistic. Um, perhaps that tells us that, you know, maybe just pre-training on ImageNet would be uh, an, an acceptable alternative when you don't have optical data. Um, however, I, I still believe that there might be some value here that really requires some further research beyond just the, the challenge setting. Um, so the, the next topic I want to talk about here is data fusion. So fusing both optical and SAR data. And in our, one of our latest blogs, um, Jason and I collaborated on, on a little bit of this. Uh, Jason, can you walk us through some of the uh, traditional uh, data fusion approaches you might try to take or attempt with uh, SAR and optical imagery? Yeah, certainly. So in general, you can think of it as a transform. We're going to transform the uh, optical imagery and the SAR Im imagery into some other space, uh, mix them there, and then uh, do the transform back into the original space. So uh, for instance, uh, you can do the same thing to do um, with SAR fusion as you do with pan sharpening. And that's the approach I took here. Um, you can, if you know anything about pan sharpening techniques, um, there are several. And uh, the one that I used was the hue saturation value uh, method and that gave me the best results. Um, but the idea is you would transform 
the RGB imagery into the HSV, hue, saturation, and value um, space, and then replace the value, uh, which is also sometimes called intensity, uh, with the star image, and then transform it back into an RGB. Uh, and that was uh, pretty successful. And in your blog post, you show several examples of that. But the idea is basically you take both SAR and optical imagery, transform it, mix them, and then transform it back. And that provides the fusion. Yeah, and it was interesting how um, how well this worked in the sense that you could really maintain the the really valuable structural components of SAR. So how how different things appear in the SAR image space, but also add in this this really um, vibrant spl splash of optical color. So um, what we think helps uh, in terms of computer vision models when you're trying to detect building footprints is that that color really can help you. Uh, discriminate between things that are, say, forest versus things that are uh, buildings, just because you've got you know some some green there versus you know other colors for for buildings, such as your your grays, your reds. Um, but uh, the, beyond that, we've really had a lot of other research um, that's starting to grow, at least, uh, where we do this this SAR to optical image transcoding and translation. So uh, that basically means we're we're training a deep learning model or some sort of model to do this process automatically uh, and maybe apply that in a situation where we really don't have that concurrent SAR optical collect. And Ronnie, you've got some uh, good experience with this. Can you walk us through some of the approaches that have been done so far? Yeah, sure. I can, I can try. Uh, so the idea is that, that SAR is actually quite nice data, right? So we can look through clouds, um, we can run it during the night and so on. But one of the disadvantages, as you mentioned, is it's really hard for humans to interpret. So there is, for example, no direct visualization. Uh, you always need to have some kind of projection into a color image. Then the image geometry is different, and a lot of effects are in the, inside of the SAR data, which people don't really know from optical data, like layover effects, uh, speckle, uh, orientation-dependent backscattering, and so on. So there are a lot of approaches that try to transform a given SAR image into something that looks like an optical image of the same scene, so that it's a little bit easier to interpret for humans and maybe also for machines. The problem here is um, early works tried that with regression, uh, but that usually does not really work well for this purpose because the problem is really ill-posed. Uh, usually there are a couple of viable options, um, so how you could take uh, a SAR patch and transform it into an optical one. And what regression tends to do is to compute the, the, the average of all of those options and then you don't really get nice results. Mm. The most of the successful approaches um, today use actually generative adversarial networks or GANs. Uh, which consists of a generator that tries to create a realistic optical image given a SAR image, and then a discriminator that aims to distinguish between an actual optical image and a synthesized optical image based on the SAR data. Now, guns come with their own problems, of course. So a vanilla gun, for example, you need paired data, so a SAR image and an optical image that are aligned. Uh, they are a little bit tedious to train, as convergence is really hard to measure and they, they oscillate a, a lot. And often they don't really generalize that well for out-of-distribution data. But in contrast to pure regression, again, can decide between one of the options instead of computing the average. So there are a couple of works doing that, and the results are really quite impressive. So you can really take a SAR image and produce something that looks really like an optical image for, for a human observer. 
need to be, be a little bit careful when you're interpreting that. Um, for example, if you have, um, let's say, some flowers on an agricultural field, uh, the, the blossoms might be open and then they have a color, for example, yellow, or they might be closed and then it's just green. So now in an optical image, you would, you would see that. Uh, but let's assume in a SAR image, this part is, is not really uh, represented in the signal. So you can't really tell in the SAR signal whether the, the blossom is open or not. Now, uh, the gun will have, in the best case, recognized this. This is this particular field of this kind of plant, but there is no way it can tell whether the blossoms are open or not. So what we will do is randomly decide for one of those options. And that might be, uh, that might cause that if you do that, that you have uh, yellow fields during a time where this flower usually doesn't bloom. And this is just one example. There are a lot of this kind of problems. So if you interpret these transcoded images by a human, you need to be really careful. But a different line of, of research is actually just using this as a byproduct. So the idea is that to do that, you only need to have paired data, right? So an optical image and a SAR image. You don't need to have any kind of semantic knowledge. But if the gun is really successful in, in synthesizing the optical data, it means that it needs to be able to distinguish between different semantic classes. So it needs to implicitly recognize this is a city, so I need to synthesize the texture of a city, or this is a forest, so I need to create the texture of a forest. So this means the features that the gun is learning in order to, to do that, they're really interesting and really meaningful, and then they can be used in a supervised learning uh, setting as an input to a, to a classifier, uh, which you train on, on labeled data. And the trick is since those features are already well-defined in the self-supervised part, uh, you don't need this much label anymore in the training data. So you, you can cope with much fewer labels and you still get much better results than you would get when you train the, the supervised learning network from, from scratch. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that actually is really cool. Um, I mean, so this, as Ronnie describes this, this is uh, really interesting work, but it's also, this is very cutting edge stuff because right now we need, still need a lot of custom models. You have to build these things from scratch for each individual task. Um, but I, I think what he's describing is, is very promising because uh, if you can do this, if you can build a GAN to understand the semantic information, the task it's ultimately going to accomplish. So in our, our case, it might be extracting building footprints. Uh, Ronnie's describing kind of a, a land use mapping scenario where you, you would do that. I think ultimately that can be a really powerful tool to transform your, your SAR data and leverage it in the best possible means to really also incorporate that optical Im imagery, bring those things together, and then ultimately do your task of interest. So uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that that uh, type of research can continue to grow here. Uh, a lot of that has really occurred with, with Sentinel imagery, correct, Ronnie? Yeah, so Sentinel has the advantage that it's giving you a SAR image from the Sentinel-1 satellite and an optical image, or actually multispectral image from the Sentinel-2 satellite, and you, you can basically geocode them, and then they're already more or less aligned. So this is a big advantage. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... Uh, Sentinel is obviously a, a wonderful resource. Um, the uh, advantage of the SpaceNet data set, of course, is that it's, we're going to have much higher resolution. So I think uh, really attempting some of these techniques at that very high resolution can be particularly interesting because I don't think a lot of that work has been done. Uh, the way SpaceNet is permissively licensed, uh, that will also hopefully open up further research avenues. And that's really some of the research we're trying to incentivize by, by open sourcing these data sets. And uh, I think we'll, we'll, we should hopefully have some success with that in, in the future. Um, so, uh, is there any other fu future research paths or potential topics that anyone could find 
interesting uh, to do with the, the SAR or optical uh, co combinations. Yeah, Jake, going back to the um, to the transform methods, um, one something that I'm interested in pursuing uh, is looking at Fourier methods to do the fusion. Um, I don't think there's a, been a lot going on there, and I'm uh, developing a process right now to do that. And I think, given the nature of SAR, it should be better than just sort of the naive HSV transformation. Mm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That, that that would make some sense going into the Fourier space. And, um, I'm also curious if Ronnie has uh, run across that at all. To to do what exactly? Uh, basically, in uh, doing the fusion um, using a, a Fourier transform rather than, say, a principal components or a HSV. I see. Well, the, the most recent work I have seen was a CVPR paper from, from this year where they tried to do dom domain adaption by transforming the data from the source domain and the target domain into the Fourier space, in the frequency space, and then exchanging part of the low frequencies of both domains and then transform it back. So they did that not with multi-sensor data, but with um, street view data. Uh, the source domain was daylight images, which you usually have in abundance. And the other one was um, um, images during sunset or dawn, where, where you know the scene is much darker. And there they showed it actually worked pretty well. I think it would be curious to, to try that with SAR and optical data. That's cool. Um, yeah, so I, I do want to kind of summarize some of the stuff we tried with this with our, our first blog. This was very preliminary research, but uh, ultimately it didn't work very well. So the data fusion itself worked, worked very well. It provided a significant performance boost over the, the SAR data alone. Uh, but when we tried to recreate um, the, the data fusion process by transforming the SAR data to look a little bit more like the optical imagery, uh, using again, in this case, we use the the pix to pix network. Uh, ultimately, that didn't work very well, and I think the reason for that is kind of touches on some of the things that that Ronnie mentioned here, in the sense that the GAN didn't really have uh, an understanding of the end task that we're trying to do. It was just you know trying to to make the the image look much like um, as much like the the optical image as possible, uh, but it didn't really understand that ultimately we're going to use this for for building footprint extraction. Um, I, I think some further or additional inputs into this process would probably be best. We used uh, a SAR span image, which is the total scattering power. Uh, it would probably be best to use quad pole data. Um, it would probably be best to use maybe some complex inputs. And that's something we'll probably ultimately end up being released uh, for in a uh, expanded data set, the expanded space that six data set, which we'll talk about at the, the end of this podcast. Um, so moving into topic two here, um, one of our other research uh, blogs in this series really focused on the value of revisit for SAR data. And uh, revisit in this case means we're re-imaging the same locations multiple times. And the SpaceNet 6 data set over Rotterdam interestingly has uh, on average about 15 revisits uh, to the same locations re repeatedly. So. Uh, can we use those revisits in some way to improve our model's performance? And what we found is that revisit really helps you quite a bit uh, in terms of extracting building footprints. If you have multiple looks of the same areas, you uh, can have predictions created for each of those areas, and then you can actually aggregate those predictions together and kind of average your predictions. 
Uh, and we found this produced about a 20% boost in our overall performance, so quite valuable here. Um, but that did peak at about four revisits. So four ended up being the magic number. Anything beyond that really didn't help us improve performance. Uh, and uh, there's a few reasons for that, but I think the first reason was really that uh, we end up having multiple looks from, uh, say, the north and the south facing. You can average those together, uh, and that ends up being a more accurate ground truth building footprint. Uh, the four is the magic number, I think, just because you end up having uh, in two revisits, one from the two from the north, two from the south. Uh, that adds some boost, but ultimately ends up not really uh, adding much more beyond that. So, uh, Jason, can you talk a little bit more about uh, some of Capella's future uh, capabilities? I know uh, that they're planning, you guys are planning to have some, some frequent revisit rates. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, right now the plan is the 36 satellite constellation uh, to provide hourly revisit anywhere in the world, right? Um, and so, as you can see, as you can tell from the Rotterdam data set and the work that we've been doing here, the hourly revisit gives you uh, some very interesting results and uh, opportunities to do things such as activities-based intelligence, uh, things like that. Um, going back to your uh, other point though, real quick, um, about the multiple looks, I'm kind of curious too uh, to see in the future if uh, different geometries would help that. You know, for the most part, we had the same um, look angle, the same incidence angle, um, and so that sweet spot was four looks. But I wonder if it would help uh, if we had a diversity of geometry there um, improving that, or, or to improve the, the building footprint. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly plausible. And uh, I think we're all excited to have Capella's uh, constellation up there and, and really be able to use use some of this data in, in the future. And hopefully we can start to test things like that because I, I do agree with you. I would think that uh, having multiple look angles, particularly from you know, uh, you know, like a north facing or south facing or east or west, looking at a, a, an object from two different directions and seeing different sides of it, I, I think that can be particularly valuable for really improving uh, our performance for, for tasks like this, particularly for static objects. Yeah, certainly. And there's some research being done uh, where they'll, folks are trying to fuse the two different look angles to get information for, say, both sides of a tall object, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can see, oh, the layover occurs um, this way, but then the shadow, what's on the other side? What's in that shadow? So mm -hmm. they fuse both sides. Um, and that probably could help out in terms of, um, uh, building footprints just to um, be able to avoid the layover that occurs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, very interesting, could be a, a valuable area to explore further here in the future. Um, so uh, with that, does anybody else have any comments on, on revisit? Otherwise, we can move into section three of this uh, multimodal extravaganza. All right. Uh, well, without further ado, then uh, let's talk about our new library that has been added to Solaris. So if you're not familiar with Solaris, Solaris is uh, a software package uh, written in Python that uh, Cosmic has led the creation of, and it's really all about uh, both pre-processing and post-processing, 
post-processing remote sensing data uh, to be fed into a, a deep learning pipeline here. Um, and Daniel Hogan has been our lead on Solaris and uh, he has actually created a new library. So Daniel, can you talk about this new library you've created? Sure, so the new library is a pre-processing uh, or post-processing library for uh, getting imagery to the point where it's ready to be tiled and fed into a deep learning model. And it consists of a, a variety of uh, different functions for processing images and, and also labels and associated data. Um, about 60 classes in total, but the part that's germane to what we're talking about today is about a third of those are focused specifically on working with SAR data and implementing some of the special pre-processing algorithms associated with SAR. Okay, awesome. Well, that, that sounds really powerful. I mean, is there anything out there in the open source like this? There are... There are SAR libraries out there, but there is nothing that combines everything in quite this way of SAR tools with data cleaning tools with really the whole, the whole package for everything you might want to do in creating um, a data set, particularly when creating a multimodal data set where these kinds of data preparation uh, and data cleaning tasks come to the fore. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so beyond that, uh, you also introduced a, a new API called Pipe Segment. Can you walk us through what, what that is and the advantages of that? Yeah, so what makes the pre-processing library more than just a random collection of Python functions is that all the classes in the library derive from a base class called Pipe Segment. It's in the, in the Pipe Segment module. And what this class does is it does a lot of the work behind the scenes. And in particular, it makes it easy to combine the different classes together to construct more complicated custom use classes. It, all these classes become just building blocks from which one can create a workflow of arbitrary complexity for a pre-processing pipeline. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of remote sensing workflows really are stringing together operations one after another. And I, I think that this pipe segment will really help streamline some of that process, correct? Absolutely. Basically, the way it works is for whatever task you want to do, you kind of picture the flowchart of how the different operations relate to each other. For each block in the flowchart, you write one line of code, basically picking out the class from the library that, that does what you want that block to do. And all the all the common tasks are already there. You can, of course, add a new class if something's missing. But once you've done that, the next part is to specify how the inputs and outputs of all of the classes relate to each other, how it all connects together. And uh, this is where the where pipe segments becomes very powerful because you can do all of that in one line of code using a very concise notation, and it leads to faster and easier construction of these workflows. That's awesome. So um, if you want to try this out right now, this is available on our GitHub, correct? It is. It is available on the Solaris GitHub. There is a three-part tutorial in uh, the uh, Solaris documentation, and we have a video tutorial as well. All right, good stuff. So that means this should be fairly easy for you to get started on as well, which uh, means it's a lot less intimidating, which is always a good thing when you're trying to take on a new project or 
try to, to implement some new code. So that that's that's all very well and good. Uh, so the the last thing that I really want to talk about today is the expanded data set. So SpaceNet six, um, we're planning to roll out an expanded data set. Uh, so Daniel, can you walk us through what we're planning for the expanded data set release? Definitely. So for SpaceNet six, we uh, released data um, that was processed and, and tiled and kind of ready to go, um, which was what was needed for the competition. But we also want to open up the possibility for people to try their own ways of manipulating the data and working with the data more broadly. So what this data set, this expanded release is going to be, is it's still the, the original data from which the SpaceNet 6 data set was constructed. Um, but what's going to be released this time is the full image strips. All 204 image strips collected over Rotterdam, the, the original data in uh, range and azimuth coordinates, complex values, all the phase information there intact, ready for people to experiment with and try new things. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, I think um, this is probably going to be the first data set really of its kind with this kind of licensing at this type of scale. So it, it's really exciting and I'm, I'm optimistic that this will really soak some, some new research in the future. Um, so what's, maybe you give an example of something you could do with, with our new library and the, the new complex data we might be releasing. Sure. So there are lots of decisions that one makes along the way in going from complex data to a finished product as you might feed into a deep learning model, for example. Um, things like, do you want the multi-look to have a smaller, large kernel size? Do you want tiles to be smaller, large? You know, I think we made a, a reasonable set of choices in constructing SpaceNet 6, but now people can try everything. Um, they can try out different things and see how well they work. And, and even something as basic as what information are you looking at? Um, so for example, for each pixel, do you want to look at a single magnitude or do you want to look at four magnitude values for the four different polarization combinations that are there? Or do you want to look at something completely different, like incorporate the phase information, which you could do with um, different kinds of polarimetric decompositions. There are three polarimetric decompositions uh, ready to go in the pre-processing library. So if that's something you're interested in, then that would be one of many cases where the pre-processing library is a real good tool to use. Awesome. So uh, anybody else have any other interesting research areas they might want to play around with with the, the expanded data set? There's been some uh, research done in using complex data to do object detection. That might be an interesting uh, route to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, I do want to point out that uh, the SpaceNet 6 data set is loaded into Azavia's tool groundwork. So that means you can annotate any features that you might be interested in. So uh, there's a lot of boats moving around in Rotterdam. I think you could really have some fun annotating boats and then trying to do some object detection with the, the complex data. would recommend that if you're interested in a research area. You know, Jake, we also forgot to plug our little um, GitHub repo for the uh, colorization fusion stuff. That's right. Yeah. So um, 
On the uh, SpaceNet Challenge GitHub repo, we have uh, a code base up there where you could do uh, the colorization that we did in the, the most recent analysis blog there. Also, on this GitHub repo, something we forgot to plug is the top five winners of the SpaceNet 6 Challenge. Uh, their, their prize winning algorithms have all been uploaded to that GitHub, so you can download those and use those today for uh, building footprint extraction or modify them in any way you really want to work with uh, SAR data or overhead observations, which is, I think, a great resource for people trying to get started with this. Um, so I think that, that brings us to really the end of this podcast here. Um, so in summary, we talked about quite a few different topics here in this multimodal extravaganza, including the data fusion approaches, uh, translation, translating uh, SAR data to look more like optical data, um, and ultimately the, the SAR new uh, library we're releasing, as well as the expanded SpaceNet 6 data set. Uh, we have a couple of events coming up here that I want to make people aware of. Uh, the first of which is the IGARS 2020 conference, which will be running from September 26th to October 2nd. Uh, the registration for that is very expensive, correct, Ronnie? How much is the registration? Well, it should be around $10. So mm. I hope that it's affordable for most of the people. Yes. Uh, so there'll be a lot of great content there. I would recommend checking, checking out uh, one of our papers that we wrote was on um, use the SpaceNet 4 data set, which you might remember is uh, a multi-look data set. So we've got 27 look angles. Uh, how does different look angles from extreme off-nader really affect your ability to detect road networks? And that, that was the focus of this paper. So we, we fuse all 27 together. How does that help you? If you're just using one of these or a few of these, how does that help you? So ultimately, as you might expect, road network detection gets uh, fairly tricky as you move off Nader, but really in the, the, those mid Nader ranges from uh, you know, zero to 35 degrees off Nader, it's actually quite, quite easy and, and works, works quite well with our, our approach. So I recommend checking that out. Another thing coming up uh, as part of that conference is a panel that I'll be participating in on September 2nd, 2020. That's at 12 p.m. Eastern time, uh, so that'll be 9 a.m. West Coast or 6 p.m. Central European, if you're doing all the math there. Uh, and that's called Deep Learning and Remote Sensing, Challenges, Solutions, and What Makes Us Different. So if you're interested in really diving deeper into some of the complexities of remote sensing, computer vision, uh, check me out. I'll be on that panel with a, a number of other really uh, interesting guests, if, if you think I'm interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, we'll... I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you to all of our, our great guests today. And uh, I think this was a really interesting podcast that uh, should have some good, good insights for uh, a wide range of people interested in these topics. So with that, I, I will say goodbye. Rule 41, don't always hire a contractor. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. 
Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inky Tells Marketing Group. Also a shout out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening and take care.